This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast. My guest today is Kurt Johnson, and Kurt is the co-author of The Coming Interspiritual Age, a tremendous, tremendous book that we're going to explore today. He is a well-known internationally, or he is well-known internationally as a scientist, comparative religionist, social activist, and former monastic, with a PhD in evolution, ecology, and comparative biology. He was associated for 20 years with the American Museum of Natural History and teaches at the One Spirit Interfaith Seminary in New York City. He is co-author also of Nabokov's Blues, a 10 Best Books in Science in 2000, and the forthcoming book Fine Lines on Scientific and Artistic Genius, which I believe actually was just published. We can verify that in a second. And Ethics, Spiritual Values, and the New UN Development Agenda. You can find out more about Ken on Wikipedia for under Kurt Johnson, entomologist, or also his website, which is interspirituality.com, which will be linked. Uh, Ken, just or, I'm sorry, Ken Kurt, just to verify the Fine Lines book, it was it's now published, correct? Yeah, March twenty okay. second, Yale University Press. Yeah. That's right. I thought in a previous email you'd mentioned that. So just to be clear for our audience, so Kurt, thank you very much for being on the show with me today. I'm very excited to talk to you. It's my pleasure, Chris. Really, we have so many friends in common that makes it even more special. Uh, it does, yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Kurt and I were just discussing um, people like Adam Bucko and Andrew Harvey and Ken Wilber. We we run in these same circles with these really deep, wonderful people who've meant so much to both of us on our paths. And while I've been very familiar with you, Kurt, for many years, this uh, was the first chance I've had in my busy schedule to finally dive into your book. The Coming Interspiritual Age, um, which I'm very excited to talk to you about. Uh, and, you know, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface. There's so much in here, so much wonderful stuff. But before we jump into that, what I like to do with my first time guests is let's talk a little bit about your Kurt Johnson's earlier years. Um, what was life like for you growing up, um, child, teenager, adult, young adult, whatever you'd like to, to discuss? And what inevitably brought you to where you are today in the work you do? Well, I'll give you a very short elevator version. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's actually very, very close to your own path in the sense of the jaws of the tiger and the mountain of madness and mm. go through the rest of it. But, you know, I uh, I grew up in, uh, in Nebraska where uh, my father was a professor at a, at a small college. I say that because I grew up right outside the Lakota uh, tribal lands. And I have a very, very deep relationship now to the Lakota shamanic traditions yeah. uh, because of that. That, of course, uh, I did my teens and early 20s in the 60s. So that was everything that was going on there from the emergence of the uh, psychedelic scene to the war and everything else. So long story short, I I had to deal, as you say in your in your book as well, I had to deal with, you know, actually clinical depression and mm -hmm. Go went through the whole suicide thing, the whole mental hospital thing. I was very, very lucky, long story short, that I had a, a psychiatrist when I was hospitalized who was a devout Roman Catholic, and he 
said to me, you know, you don't have any standard diagnosis. There's no way that we could say that you're actually, you know, clinically ill. And he said to me, you know, could you actually look at this as a spiritual battle? Mm. And could you pull it together on that level? Because he said, if you don't, you've got three alternatives. You're either going to kill yourself, you're going to be back here for the rest of your life, or you're going to figure it out. And he suggested then that I go into uh, monasticism. And um, I did. I, I went into the Order of the Holy Cross. Uh, I was there for, you know, on toward a decade. Wow. And during that time, really was lucky to put Humpty Dumpty back together very much in the way that you talk about in your book. And and many, many of the dots that then laid, uh, led to, you know, further non-dual realization later. Um, so I was very lucky to come out of that period. It was during that period that I was very outspoken for the other contemplative traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufism, the whole nine yards. And as with many people in that era, like, you know, Matt Fox and Wayne and many others, I, I we got in trouble with our orders because we were too broad. It was now it'd be very kosher to be trans traditional, sure. but it wasn't kosher. Yeah. So, you know, I was really then asked to leave. Uh, but that was a blessing as well, because that was the start of my major part of my scientific career, uh, which got, you know, very large and very accomplished, all a blessing relative to service. But it was during that time that I met Wayne Teasdale, right when he had uh, written his seminal book on, on inner spirituality. So yeah. when he and I then became friends and he would pass away almost four years later, he pretty much dumped that work in my lap mm -hmm. and everything's that's grown from that sense, which is huge at this point has just been a natural unfolding of everybody who was in that transtraditional mold, universal spirituality, global spirituality, multiple belonging, you know, whatever we call it. So, that that was really the journey, but for luckily for me, um, once I stabilized, then all of the wonderful things that are available in consciousness and the world of service and the shamanic realms and those things just opened up for me. Like once I got through the bottleneck, then I realized that that was really, as you say in your book, was really the path to come out on the other side where you come out of the hole and the sun is just blazing and wow, you're in a whole new world and a whole new life. Yeah. So I think that's a dark night of the soul that everyone talks about. After that, as you say in your book, it's about love and service and finding your tribe and your niche relative to what you're serving and the ongoing transformational process for the whole cosmos. And yeah. uh, so here we are. And I, I turned 70 this summer. So that's been a very interesting, uh, interesting road. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can imagine. And I know, like you said, you just made a very long story short. I'm sure there's much more to it. But thank you for sharing what you did. Something I would love to talk a little bit more about, um, because I, I just I'm so such a big fan of his work is your relationship with Wayne Teasdale. You know, you, you obviously are. You write quite a bit about him in the uh, coming interspiritual age, and his seminal book, which you mentioned, The Mystic Heart, is uh, one of the biggest in my own life as well, of course. So I would love, love, love if you could share a little bit about mm. that relationship and any anything that comes to mind for you. Mm. Well, it's interesting that Wayne was a charismatic, under-the-radar, powerful charismatic. Someone joked that if you were riding in a car with him, and you were like somewhere east of Cleveland, mm. and he said, we need to turn around and go to Los Angeles, you would do it. <laughs> because his connection to source and his calling in this whole process of what happens to religion when the world goes global, he was not only keenly aware of that, he was such a vessel for having that job description because of that humility, accessibility, and... Uh, and you were aware that you were a part of riding a wave. Mm. Uh, and I think if I look actually at what's unfolded since then, you know, I, I did 23 years as an administrator in the field of law along with everything else I did in science. So being a, a darn good organizer and administrator, he, he really needed that relative to what he was trying to build. So there was an obvious niche that I could fit into. But the thing that we had in common was that we had both experienced – non-duality in the Christian contemplative context 
Then we had moved on to Advaita Vedanta mm. and then added on to that Dzogchen and Sufism and the shamanic traditions. And the, very much the pathway of those experiences in Wayne's life was very similar to mine. So I met him in 2001, which was shortly after I had left uh, the monastic community that I was in at their request and was then at the American Museum of Natural History. And we decided to get together. And I think, as you remember, when you were younger, where you talk to somebody all night mm. and you get joined at the hip. Yes. And you realize that this is a this is a calling. And we have many of those since all of us. But for Wayne and I, it was very much that way. And it was interesting thing about Wayne is he had many different kinds of friends. Mm. I say this actually in the book that he had people who were close to him personally that he didn't talk that much about about mission. But then he had other friends that he the whole conversation was mission. And we might not be the ones that he would share with about his dog or his cat or whatever the personal. Uh, and that was interesting. He was like a Johnny Appleseed. Everywhere he went, there was a different seed that was uh, was cast. And he was very innocent in that. It was almost as if he didn't know what he was doing, yet Grace knew what it was doing with him. Mm. And then, of course, the matter of his uh, cancer and his passing. So just to summarize then, actually what's built, what's become the inner spiritual movement uh, comes from the incredible circle of friends that he had that felt that same connection to him, but brought to it very different ranges of talent. So, for instance, if you go to the programs page at innerspirituality.com, there's about 30 people listed there now whose work is inspired by him. Yeah. And it reaches out in many, many different ways. But I think if we're really talking about, which is what our book is about, is what happens to religion when the world goes global and multiculturally, and which is inevitable, it's already happening. Mm. Does religion handle that healthily or does it end up catastrophic? Uh, this transition had to happen. And, and now we see even in evolutionary studies and the work that I'm doing with David Sloan Wilson, the video we did with Ken Wilber last summer, um, we're, re we're reaching that threshold as a species now that we either go global successfully mm. or we go global catastrophically. Right. And so just to, again, not go on and on, but um, so, you know, knowing Wayne in that deep way, uh, obviously, you know, what a stroke of luck, right? Mm. Or just racing my own life. Sure. Yeah. You know, I was going to actually talk a little bit about that with you later on, but I figure since we're already on the topic, you know, how how do we go globally in a way that is not catastrophic in regards to religion? What what do you think about that? Well, you know, you say in your own book, you know, that this is about dropping from the head to the heart. Yeah. And it's about dropping from being motivated in our actions by narratives, which by their nature are competing, yeah. stories, cosmologies, religious claims, right. dropping into the world that knows that the only thing, and this is, of course, the whole body of the Dalai Lama's re, you know, recent writings beyond religion and so on, that, as he said, the only road that we can walk down together, uh, because the narratives are so varied, is the road of the heart, the road of mutuality, interconnectedness, profound oneness, values, ethics, ideals, and wanting a world that works for everyone. Right. And that knowledge is in the heart. It's served by the head. We say, often say that the head's a great servant but a lousy boss. Uh, and and if globally we can't drop into that heart place where everything's naturally one to begin with, empathy is inherent, it's automatic, um, you know, that seems to be the, 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 the threshold. And as Ken Wilber says, that really is synonymous with getting from I to we to it. Right. And right now, all of us in our work, and I'm sure this is true with you as well, we see that where we're all struggling and working is at that cusp between I and we. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we're able to work in we, we're, we're able then to address the structures of we, which is what it, the institutional landscape is all about. So even in our book, the UN Development Agenda book, mm -hmm. this is actually a, a book rep saying from the point of view of all the world's wisdom traditions, and in a sense answering the very strong voices at the UN that are materialist, uh, 
and uh, dictatorial like the uh, mainland Chinese mm. is saying that we're not going to be able to build a world that works for everyone if we edit out the knowledge of the wisdom traditions and the heritage of spirituality. What, what reductionism and materialism does is that, as you know from Wilbur, it, it, it just considers that all superstitious, that it's pre-rational, it's irrelevant, and therefore you actually don't have the building blocks that it would take to actually build that world. Now, just one other comment, you know, um, uh, Edgar Mitchell, who passed away recently, right. and, uh, president of Fions, um, one of his epiphanies that doesn't get the same traction as his seeing the world as one fragile place was when he also realized that the narrative of Western society basically has divorced humanity from some of its, actually its richest skills of how it could actually meet uh, this globalizing and complex world because it's gone to the head and not to the heart, just again to put it in a nutshell. Yeah. And you you go on and on about that in your book, and rightly so. Even all the practices in your book at the end, toward the end, are aimed at, at allowing people to go to that place. Yeah. And you also point out not only that in the way we relate to people, but the way we relate to ourselves and the way we have that space in ourselves. Uh, you quote that uh, quote from the Buddha, the fake quote, you know. <laughs> so-called fake quote yeah who knows <laughs> yeah, exactly. but it's 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 dead on yeah love your tattoos by the way well thank you <laughs> <laughs> now that i can see your arm oh yes it's it's been a life lifelong <laughs> adventure cool. and it's not done yet but uh, <laughs> thank you i appreciate that so well i guess one way for me that you know i feel we go about that which is essentially what your book is based on interspirituality which we're not you know it's not saying that you have to adhere to all of these different great wisdom traditions you can be firmly rooted in your own tradition but it is about having that open heart and that open mind and just being open in general, you know, which it seems like that is very difficult for a lot of people still in this day and age. So I actually wanted to read a short excerpt from that and then discuss this further with you. So as you write, interspirituality is the natural discussion among human beings about what we are experiencing. In academic terms, it's the intersubjective discussion among us all about who we are, why we are here, and where we are going. In the context of religion, interspirituality is the common heritage of humankind's spiritual wisdom and the sharing of wisdom resources across traditions. In terms of developing human consciousness, interspirituality is the movement of all these discussions towards the experience of profound interconnectedness, unity, consciousness, and oneness. Very well said. So, and there's a lot said in that short excerpt. So let's unpack that a bit, shall we? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I think maybe the deepest aspect there, you pointed out the first one, and that is that everyone will naturally be rooted in their set of choices relative to what narrative works sure. for them. It's like in your book when you talk about, you know, coming up with certain music on the iPod to match where you're at on a certain day. So that's totally natural. Yeah. The main difference for this future world of how the religions can be a part of the soft landing instead of the hard landing is that we see that all of the narratives, all of the practices, and all of the gifts from these traditions are actually what Wayne called wisdom resources. Hmm. They're like a gigantic banquet table, which has been laid out by evolution and the cultural evolution of our existential experience and spirituality to offer all of these pathways, all of these doors, all of these conveyor belts, to finding uh, liberation at the individual level, finding what that looks like in the collective, and then finding what that would look like uh, in a world whose institutions would reflect uh, those values, which would be a very different world than the one we live in today. It would be basically a non-egoic world, right. where to love and to serve and to be altruistic and to give is truly more satisfying than... Uh, you know, the, the meat grinder of the ego. And again, your book is an amazing litany of, of the meat grinder of the ego. And if any of us war, wrote our own 
autobiography, as you did, and hopefully many more people will, they would all be very much the same in that way. Sure. How we finally got out of ourselves mm. and into that incredibly fulfilling place of what it's like when we're actually realizing that we are the other and, and, and everything that that, uh, that that implies. You know, I think the, the salvific thing, and you mentioned it in your book as well, when you step out of that place, which was egoic and therefore so connected to suffering, you are so blown away that this other way of being is not only available, mm. but that it's able to actually actualize all the aspects of your life. Nothing, nothing is left out. Yeah. So I think when we experience that in the I space, and we say, each of us, I know from my own experience that this is true and that it's possible. That's a declaration that then goes beyond a declaration in the I space. It's totally just logical then that can also be true for we, and it can also be true, hopefully, for a world in institutional spaces that would be heart-friendly. Now, when you talk in your book about your wife and your extended family, that's the vibe. And then as I read your book, I see or I could feel, because you write it so well, Thank you. The process of discovery, the discovery of, of, of Jen and the discovery of, 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 of your tribe, yeah. which is such – that's the evidence in any of our lives that we're not just – that this isn't all just BS. Yeah. I'll just say one other thing is that you know, about 11 years ago, I had a very profound near-death experience after a spleen rupture where I was pretty much bleeding to death and been told I, I probably w wouldn't make it. And at that point, I really said to myself in ICU, I said, now you find out whether the non-dual stuff is BS or whether it really makes this work. Yeah. And that experience, and you talk about many of them in your book, being pushed to the absolute limit. Like when you were talking about your blackout experiences and the, yeah. and the thing with the knife in the kitchen. and Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, yeah. yeah. So it's, a, it's in those existential moments, and then you also in your book, you have these statements from different saints and sages where the soul declares, I am this immutable thing. And not only am I am this immutable thing, but that is the source of, of unquenchable availability of love and caring. Mm -hmm. And in the Tao Te Ching where it says that tap can never be emptied. And when you realize that, that that's a revolution. And again, as you say in your book, it's available to everybody. Yeah. You know. All very well said. You know, as you're speaking, I'm also thinking about a conversation I had uh, just a couple of days ago with Mirabai Starr, who's probably a, another mutual friend of ours. Absolutely. I, ju I just do a retreat with her this weekend. Oh, okay. So there you go. Yes. She's, uh, <laughs> she's another just big, big heart guide in my life. And we're talking about a lot of the things you were just discussing. And she said, and of course, this isn't verbatim, but, you know, something to the effect of this path of the heart is a very fierce path and it is not for the faint of heart. You know, it is it is a tough one. And uh, and I needed to hear that because, you know, yes, like I've had this taste of the other side and I've seen, you know, the the one in the many and the many in the one. And I've had that beautiful experience where it almost felt, you know, it was overwhelming in a way. But then there are still times in my life to this day where that the ego creeps back in and that those feelings of I am so not worth that magnificence, you know, and that <laughs> even doesn't do justice to what yeah. it actually is. But, yeah. uh, you know, so it's 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 a hell of an experience. But thank goodness for those direct experiences because I do know better. You know, once I'm once I get through that and and also thank you to the teachings of impermanence from Buddhism recognizing mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. these thoughts of unworthiness in this moment are going to pass. You know, yes. just right now I, I I feel like crap and it is what it is. I don't feel worthy of that grace, but there will come a time maybe in a few minutes, maybe in a few days where I again do feel worthy of that. So mm -hmm. quite a path it is. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. No. There's one place in your book I, I identified with when you said that sometimes it's so narrow that you say, I will not go down that effing path today. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, today. and then, you know, as you just said also, once you reach whatever that point is of internal surrender, which is it's a very simple place, you put yourself in a place where that dazzling light in the heart, which gives the comfort and the serenity and the okayness, 
shines at any moment. I mean, you realize it wasn't it wasn't that it was not shining. You were just had your attention somewhere else, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so I, I think as all of us mature, that's kind of what continues to unfold. I I tend to have a regret. I will say a lot of discussions I've had with a lot of people in the last couple of years that the lifespan of Homo sapiens seems to be too short. Uh, maybe that'll change, but it seems that we just start to get our act together uh, when it's almost too late to make a contribution, right? <laughs> and meantime, the younger generation is reinventing the wheel with every type of catastrophe imaginable that yeah. you already went through, and you can't really often speak to their dilemma. Sure. And so you really wonder, I mean, what is it with this species that the 70, 80, 90-year lifespan just doesn't seem to give us time to, like, you know, just, you know, first get it and then live it and celebrate it, you know? Mm. So Now, you're, you're lucky that you got it earlier. <laughs> well, I don't know if I got it. Like, that's the thing is, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up on 38 in, in June. I'll turn 38. And already, though, I'm worrying, like, you know, of course, I don't know when I'll die, but let's say I live a, a healthy life to 75, 80 years old, maybe beyond, maybe before, but somewhere in that ballpark. I don't know. You know, like I, I know there is still so much work to be done. And I'm it, the fact that I'm already kind of I'm not stressing out about it, but I'm I'm very cognizant of that fact, you know, and you're right. Like, I feel like, sure, like I, you know, I've had many tastes and, and I know I'm I'm on the right trajectory, but, you know, I. <laughs> I think of actually uh, what what Krishna Das has told me a few times, where he talks about you know we've just been born so many times, and we mm -hmm. probably will be born you know thousands upon mm -hmm. thousands of times. Just mm -hmm. just chill out, don't worry about it. You know, like relax. You you can sit there and stress about it, or you can mm -hmm. just do your best today. And life's going to do what it's going to do. And you know, there's no shortage of opportunities in the future, whether you know this life or one beyond that you know you'll be able to to sort more things out now i know we're we're going in the direction of reincarnation but that's if you believe in that sort of thing um which which i i do i don't know for a fact but and maybe it's part of me that's a little i don't like the idea of just things fading to black um but no i, I think it seems to make more sense to me but anyways so yeah here we are today you know showing up today doing the best we can today and uh what else can you do you know yeah, I think, you know, sometimes uh, when I look at, you know, spiritual teachers who've been lucky enough to establish their niche in a very stable way, and very often they're able to teach from that awakened eye place and and not deal so much with what I kind of call the meat grinder of we, I think any of us who are in collective work or have been called to collective work, networks and building collectives that actually can function at some type of integral and awakened level. Yeah. That's a it's a meat grinder because as uh, you know, as these and David Sloan Wilson, his book on altruism, and everybody points it out, the spiritual community is full of pathologies, mm. and the spiritual community is full of people with uh, shadow and yeah. and pathologies that can that just invade in the most bizarre and destructive ways. And to be patient with that, I know Wayne Teasdale. It's funny, I was just quoting him to somebody on an email today because I'm going through a process in a collective uh, group where, you know, people are again, disagreeing and then yeah. blaming and all, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then some of them want to just run from that energy, you know, and run back to I because it can be fairly peaceful there. But Wayne, you know, used to say, you know, we had good reason to get out of this work on day two, you know, and you just have to say existentially, that if you're called to we type, we and it level work, um, that that's what comes with the territory. And boy, sometimes you got to swallow real hard. Mm. Like when somebody steals some money or when somebody, you know, d you know, acts in some, you know, damaging emotional way, you just, and yet those people can be, you know, gifted people in their own right and other lines, you know, yeah. boy, you just have to swallow hard. You have to realize all of us have our shadows, some, you know, more harmless than others, thank God. But but you just I think that's the thing with me with age and and doing this work as long as I have. I have to stop sometimes and say that all of that's kind of like the common cold of spirituality right now mm. uh, in my own life and others. And, and, and don't let it 
stop you from believing in the process. So interesting thing, Deepak Chopra has a, uh, a listserv that he's doing with a bunch of us that go to science and non-duality and discuss, you know, where the unity of science is going. And that discussion actually ended up with the conclusion because of this turbulent diversity yeah. that that the calling right now that will work for everyone is do what you're uniquely called to do and trust the process. Because my God, if you stand back and try to evaluate the process, you'll just go, whoa, right. this ain't going to work. Yeah. But, and, and so you end up really surrendering to that, I guess, call it pathless path or whatever is just emergent mm-hmm. and just saying, you know, I know what I'm called to do, do that well, do it with as much integrity as I can, and then trust that the whole process with all the checkers on the board is actually going to um, to get that place that the heart tells us it is inevitably going to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that is so important, just being called to do what you're called to do, you know, just doing what you're called to do. Uh, something that, you know, I, I've certainly struggled with uh, myself, especially when for me, it, you know, I feel more aligned with the interspiritual model of really honoring the tremendous wealth of wisdom that come from these great traditions. And I, I just personally, you know, I, I, I have a very hard time identifying specifically with one path. And I have plenty of friends that do that, and that's wonderful. And I have tried in the past, but it's just I have felt internally that that is not the case. Or it's just it's not right for me. And when, you know, when I have to honor that, then it kind of leaves me feeling like I'm, I'm floating a bit, you know, a lone wolf, so to speak, in a way. Um, and it's tricky to navigate that. But yeah, and, it's, and that's well said, because actually, I think the best term now for inner spirituality is one Matthew Wright came up with, and it's multiple belonging, mm. that we're able now to truly belong in multiple traditions and have them be serving us. Now, the reason that that's true, and I'm glad this came up, yeah. because it was true at the time I wrote the book, but it's clearer now, so it's, it's not emphasized as much as it should be. Every tradition has a cosmology and a technology. Yeah. Their cosmology is their narrative, their technology is their spiritual practice. And the amazing thing of these resources that are on the table is our ability to draw from these technologies and will actually meet major surprises. I mean, people who know me know that you know, maybe about two years ago now, when I uh, got into Kundalini Yoga in the Yogi Bhajan Sikh tradition, yeah. wow, I mean, there was a technology, irrespective of what the narrative might be, that, you know, totally as, you know, Karuna, who's my close friend in that community, said when, she, when we first started working together, you know, this is like double your vitality. That's the least I can do for you in your late 60s. Let's like double your vitality, right? <laughs> Well, you know, it, it turned out to be really true. And also that I was studying under Guru Charan, who was one of Yogi Bhajan's assistants and co-editor of most of his books. And the thing that was great about that was that he didn't teach from just one doorway. Mm-hmm. He was teaching from his knowledge of all the wisdom traditions and then showing you how the Kundalini technology served all of that irrespective of what the narrative might be. Right. So I was very lucky to get invited into that technology, let's say, by a teacher who wasn't teaching parochially. Because I think if I'd have been with a teacher who was teaching parochially, and that's true for all of us, you go, you know, your religious buttons get pushed. Right. And your cultic, subcultural buttons get pushed. Yes. And you go, oh, not room <laughs> for me here, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. So I felt very lucky in that way. But I, I think those surprises are out there for everyone. Uh, they won't be the same for everyone, but right. you know that thing of uh, of the uh, of of knowing that all these lineages can be you know can be nurturing you, yeah. and then when you get into traditions and you you develop the vertical relationship with their saints, sages, and gurus, which is also very real, and one doesn't need to even be pretentious to talk about it. It's right. very real. Um, those are available now to us through all the traditions, and we should just. You know, not only welcome that, but just open the doors and see who walks in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so well said. Yeah. Um, and and it, I'm glad, you know, there are people such as yourself and Andrew and Mirabai and Adam. I mean, all the people we've spoken about and many more out there that are 
advocating on behalf of that because there's also no shortage of teachers out there who frown upon, you know, that um, honoring multiple paths, learning from multiple paths, incorporating that into your life. Um, you know, they're very rigid and in, in, it's in a dogmatic way as far as I'm concerned. You know, like, no, this is the only way to do it, you know, whether it's Buddhist or Hindu or whatever the case may be. There's people from all the traditions that feel that way, yet there are also people from all the traditions who don't feel that way. So it's just nice to see it's becoming a bit more not just accepted, but celebrated amongst people. Yeah, and, there, and there's a great metaphor out there for that, and I, I don't really remember where it came from. Maybe Matt Wright, a bunch of us who used to meet with Father Keating for yes. 10 days yeah. every summer. We used to like chat for a whole week living together. And what they basically said was that, that the argument for only one tradition is that you need to go really deep with one well in order to get there. Yeah. And that anybody who's would appear to be using 10 or 15 wells, therefore must be a dabbler. But what we say now is that we're not digging 15 wells. We're digging one well with 15 different tools. Mm. And that's a powerful metaphor, I think, of what the inner spiritual age offers Homo sapiens. In other words, you've got all these tools. And I, 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 one of the things I loved about your book is that it really chronicled how you discovered what you needed when you needed it. Right. Isn't that amazing? And continue to, absolutely. And continue yes, to, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's such a great way of saying it. And and I've, I have heard something similar to that before. I, I really do appreciate that because you're right. I don't consider myself a dabbler. You know, I, I take my path very seriously. It saved my life, continues yeah. to save my life on a daily basis. So, uh, no, I wouldn't say, you know, I or anyone that, approaches it similar to me is not a serious practitioner by any means so you know what what andrew harvey advocates for uh the the discernment of your experience having that direct experience and once you have that no one can say otherwise you know that's something yes i do try to write in in, in my book and uh you know honor your truth just make sure you're doing so in a way that is discerning you know because the ego is very tricky as well and can yeah. sneak its way right in there absolutely <laughs> And they sometimes say the smarter the person, the smarter the ego. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I always keep that one in mind. You know, oh, very academic stuff. Very important. Oh, my God. So, but I want to yeah, say also, you please. know, another reason that I identified with your book so much is that a lot of people, you know, because I am very niched in academia and, you know, all the work that I've done, that's probably a calling, you know, then they would might assume that that my real passion is not with the gut level raw experience of non-dual consciousness itself and just the the blood and guts of the bottlenecks we're all in sure. when actually who i am as a person is very much anchored in that you know that what really drips off of your book mm. um that's that's where my personal experience is i think uh these other skill sets that i have just from all the education and all the time in academia and all of that is is really the kind of like part of the service provider package right right you know so uh, and I love that. I, as soon as before we even started this, I, I got that uh, that energy, that vibe from you right away. I could tell, and uh, I love that because that's it's often not the case. Usually, not usually, but often what I found is what you see is what you get, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because, like we said earlier, we're called to do certain things. We follow that calling. All good. Um, but you're one of a couple of people I've met who are very academic uh, in their approach. Ken Wilber would be another one, you know. But yeah. I'll tell you, when I talk to Ken. My God, you know, he's just a normal human being who struggles with life stuff and is so down to earth and is very funny. And, uh, you know, it's it's just refreshing. But, you know, yeah. he also approaches his material predominantly from that academic standpoint. And it is a huge service. So, you know, we're all just doing our part. Um, but speaking of Ken, and you said earlier, you started and a few times. We've talked about the I, we, the it. There's a, a section in the coming interspiritual age where uh, you talk about how everyone's a mystic. There's a chapter to that. And I love that. And, and in that, you elaborate on Ken's four quadrants, you know, the I, we, it, and of course, it's. So I would love, I know we've you've talked a little bit about it, but can we, can we, um, or would you mind elaborating a little bit on that for anyone who's not familiar with Ken's quadrants and how that does play into how we are all mystics? Yeah, I guess I'll kind of use a metaphor that Llewellyn Von Lee, the Sufi teacher who also was a close friend of Wayne's and therefore of mine, yeah. he talks about having what he calls the ticket or the pass. 
And what's wonderful about the current age that we live in and non-dual consciousness and the world of the heart, it really is the ticket that allows you to enter seamlessly into all of those quadrants as if they were rooms of a, you know, of a cosmos or a larger place or whatever it may be. I think all of us start to understand, and it actually is portrayed in your book, is that whatever transformation is, it moves from the personal space, which is the I space, the original aha experiences incrementally. Once those stabilize so that I person, who you are personally, is, 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 is standing on its own ground and can look elsewhere, mm. then it immediately, that ticket takes it into the world of we. And that's in every level of relationships, personal, uh, collegial, creative, whatever it would be. And then we go through the grist mill of working out how our mysticism, that's what the ticket really is. It's our inherent ability to navigate all of this because it's in our it's in our nature yeah. because we're all creatures of love and it's all about love. So once you then get into we and into the collective experience and the dialogues of love and the interactions of love, then you also have to find your stability there. You have to learn your skills there, find your some degree of mastery there. And, uh, and then hold that ground with some, you know, integrity and stability. Once you can do that, uh, then you're able to take that ticket, which is, again, that we're all a mystic. We all have the same inherent qualities. And we suddenly realize, um, wow, it's not just about being enlightened or whatever the hell that is. It's really about what this looks like at the whole world level. Yeah. And I remember when the embodiment, what we call now the embodiment movement, when people went out of spiritual bypass and just the transcendent experience, and they started to realize, oh, my God, this is about everything. It's about the body. It's about the world. It's about cultures. It's about governments. It's about all this. I remember many of my close spiritual teacher friends, many who are have transitioned now, they talked about how this realization just arose in them naturally because mm -hmm. many of them were just doing traditional satsang where they were just really pretty much giving from the eye space to the uh, to the eye space of another person in that mutual kindling the fire of, of everyone's you know gradual awakening right. and suddenly they realized oh my god this isn't just about who i am this is about you know what a world would look like that was actually built on these and and they were blown away because when they realized that it was self-evident mm. but they hadn't they just hadn't seen it before it hadn't been the emphasis before and of course that was happening because that understanding is has been emerging at a global level right. and it's been emerging through vortices like yourself and all these other teachers who declare it somebody has to declare this stuff everybody says oh yeah wow i just have been thinking that for five years myself and then suddenly that new emergent level emerges so so eventually that ticket which is the self or our buddha nature krishna nature whatever we want to call it hopefully is going to allow us to walk into all of those quadrants, into all those sectors of being, and walk into them skillfully. Mm. And not only walk into them, but build structures there that actually reflect the world that the heart tells us we could actually build. So, for instance, when we look at today's political landscape, we see this stark contrast between mm. what the heart says is possible and what we've settled on, which mm. is just unbelievably you know, just like an egoic pretzel. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that's it. So actually, everyone being a mystic, like Llewellyn says, is, is that ticket. And that can allow you to get in any door. Just present your ticket. I'm here as Atman is Brahman. Right. You, you have to let me in. No one is not allowed. Out of my way, goddammit. <laughs> you know? I love that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I... I what a, what a world it would be, you know, if we get to the place where more and more people are able to embrace that part of themselves, you know, that is if we don't blow ourselves up first, you know, and that's <laughs> yeah. the trick, right? But, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's, I'm thinking of uh, an interview I'd listened to. It's actually an older interview, but it was an audio that Tammy Simon from Sounds True, uh, was doing with Eckhart Tolle. And, um, you know, they're talking about or he's talking about consciousness is expanding more and more people are waking up, you know, beautiful sentiment. But Tammy made a good point, you know, at saying that, do you think and, and not verbatim, just want to clarify, but something to the effect of, you know, that a lot of people in these spiritual communities are feeling this collective conscious awakening spreading 
because that's their bubble, because that's what they're surrounded by all the time. And and you could tell she kind of caught him off guard with that a little bit. And he he didn't even try to argue the point. You know, he, he honored it as a good point. And, you know, that's something that I see all the time because, of course, I have my spiritual friends, but I have plenty of friends that have no interest in spirituality. And that's fine because we can connect in other places that still bond us. And, you know, it's they're very important people in my in my life. Um, but that also helps me to see like, it, yes, in one hand it is growing, but I still, you know, I see the people that are not interested. I see the people that are turning to drugs and alcohol as a way to numb out and deal with, you know, just the insanity of life sometimes. So uh, it's it's an interesting dichotomy because, yes, on the one hand, I do feel that that consciousness is evolving, but you just take a look around the world and it is also exploding and imploding. And my God, so, you know, I I, I say it half jokingly if we don't blow ourselves up first, you know, because that's unfortunately a semi-realistic thing that could happen. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the great quotes by Stephen Hawking. Uh, somebody asked him, "Do you think if there do you think there's intelligent life in other planets?" And he said, "Yeah, but I also think most of them blew themselves up immediately after learning that E equals M C squared." <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, but see what's interesting, even with Eckhart, and of course, uh, his books were namaste books, so those folks I also have the privilege to to know. Um, yeah, It's yeah. interesting that The Power of Now was a very ice-based book, and it was a revolutionary sure. ice-based book. Changed my but life. A New Earth, A New Earth was a very we-space-it-space book. Yeah. Now, as we point out in The Coming Inner Spiritual Age, it was an inspirational book. There wasn't a lot of detail of what it might look like. Now, when right. namaste came to me to write becoming inner spiritual age. That's actually what they asked for. Mm. They were saying, you know, Eckhart wrote an amazingly inspiring book about what the world should look like, but there wasn't necessarily data in there to show that that's what's happening. Yeah. And I think what we did in our book, which has made the book, you know, it, it's daunting in some ways because of the amount of information in it, but that's what we were asked to do. And I always recommend that if people read the book, kind of like a lot of ways people read Wilbur, jump around, Go where you want to go. Skip the parts that may bog you down. Uh, what we were trying to do was provide the information that, yes, you can see this is happening. Mm. And we did a summary of the book for Cosmos Journal. And it was interesting. What we did in that summary was we pulled out just a lot of the statistics that show that this is, this is definitely the direction that things are going. But even at that, when you read an article like that, then you get this, this barrage of statistics but you almost have to lay that out there in order to satisfy people that, hey, this is not a pipe dream. Right. This is actually where uh, the process is going. And, and the, the thing that's exciting now about what we're doing with David Sloan Wilson, uh, I think you may or may not know people in the audience, but a, a book that he wrote in – it's the first in the series of Yale Templeton's Foundational Questions of Science. Mm. And he basically says, based on his work with E.O. Wilson in Quarterly Review of Biology – the selfish gene no longer rules, and survival of the fittest no longer rules. What we found now in evolutionary biology, that once you go past the individual, once you get to group and multi-level selection, natural selection selects for processes and structures that serve the whole and not self-interest groups. Mm. So we, we've had it upside down ever since the Darwinian revolution. So what the altruistic evolution people are saying now, we, 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 we messed that up. It's gotten our economics all screwed up. It's gotten our governance all screwed up because it's all survival of the fittest and shark tank and selfish gene. When nature, you know, wonder, you were, why, does, why do ecosystems work? Why are they balanced in organisms? Because nature selects for structures and processes that serve the whole. Now, and so this is new news. It's revolutionary. And what's great about a guy like David Sloan Wilson, we just did a program with him on Tuesday in New York City that was all filmed. Great. He's not content to wait 15 years for that message to float down in science. Mm -hmm. He's saying, we got to get out there and, and say, hey, we have been on the wrong track. And the, and, the, and, the, and the conclusion then is simple, is that cultural evolution is a matter of conscious choice. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of random phenomena. And if we don't make those conscious choices based on wisdom, again, as David says, evolution can take us someplace we don't want to go. You know, and, and this is why that answer, particularly to the reductionist materialist community, let's say in the UN, where I do a lot of work, it's just so important. 
because they actually believe that the reductionist materialist view is not only true, but that it will work. And you know yourself, your whole book is about how the head didn't work. Right. It was the heart that works, right? right? right. And so that, that, that now is hitting mainstream science is, you know, really important. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, and I love that you, you covered it. Like I said, when we first started, you know, this conversation, we've barely even scratched the surface of everything that is in this book. I can't recommend it enough to anyone who's checking out and everyone who's checking out this conversation we're having. Um, one of the things I really appreciated that you also brought into the book, of course, with your background, uh, is the scientific consciousness studies themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and I love that, you know, you're able to bring that in and you address the topic of these studies and you discuss our basic experience of consciousness and raw feeling and the quantum ideas of consciousness and the future of unconsciousness. And there's a, there's so much ground you cover in regards to that in the book. And I, I would definitely be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about that before we, you know, wrap up this conversation. So, could, could you give a, a summary uh, of sorts, you know, in regards to that for the audience? Yeah. Um, obviously, one of the big uh, thresholds that science has had to cross is that the wisdom traditions for millennia have said that we all share a field of consciousness. Yeah. And even if we look at the wisdom traditions in incredible depth, then you're talking about an Akashic field. Sure. You're talking about nonlinear time. You're talking about all the realms that are in shamanism and all the spiritual gifts and all of that. It's only recently that even 50% of consciousness study scientists have come to agree that there's most likely a shared field uh, as opposed to the reductionist materialist view that would say that there's just the field that each individual brain mm. emits, or not only our brains, but turkey brains and rabbit brains and everything else. And, and as the quantum physicists have pointed out, and this comes out really big at science and non-duality, that flies in the face of just the general knowledge of quantum physics itself. In other words, the, the, a quantum reality is a set of subsets Sets and subsets and sets and subsets. And so when we start to realize at the scientific level that we're in an interconnected field, mm -hmm. and now that they're starting to understand how, um, well, let me just say, this will interest everybody because it puts it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. They're basically saying now that the way that the cosmos is put together is that it starts with information. And that is actually just mathematical probabilities. It's just mathematics. That goes to waveforms, because if you've actually ever seen bell curves in all kinds of studies, they're just mathematical distributions. And suddenly a mathematical distribution that has a reality in a waveform. And then a waveform, once that's vibrating, that's what energy is. So higher degrees of waveforms are energy. Now we know from the Higgs boson phenomenon, at a certain point, energy transfers over to taking on mass, and it becomes matter. And then all the higher structures of matter are based on that. So the quantum view of reality is that the direction of input is actually from the information to the waveforms, to the energy, to the mass, and to the higher structures of mass, and not the other way around, which mm -hmm. is what conventional uh, uh, science would say. So that brings up an incredible metaphysical, spiritual, theological question. What's the source of the information? <laughs> And what's the, what's the information flow that's driving that? Right. For human beings, it has a very interesting implication, and that is that conventional science has said that, first it said chromosomes were discrete things, then it said DNA molecules were discrete things. But if actually DNA molecules are expressions of waveforms which are, are, are actually you know, in dynamic flux, then you can actually ask, well, what's informing the, the, the structures of the DNA that are then creating the pathways of development from DNA to RNA and blah, blah, blah. Mm. So that's a scientific revolution because it, it's basically saying, as the wisdom traditions have always said, that everything goes from formlessness to form. Right. The flow, and, and in your book and in every other spiritual teacher's book, every artist, every poet, things move from the world of formlessness to the world of form. And so there's so much homework for us to do. Now, the good news is, for instance, a guy, David Chalmers, who's uh, one of the big consciousness studies people in Australia, he has a very balanced idea of how this all works. And that 
view of consciousness is also now very much in sync with brain-mind studies. Let's say what Rudolf Tanzi is doing at Harvard mm -hmm. and Stuart Hameroff and, and, and Deepak and others who are talking about that the, the, the banks for our storing this information in our brains are the, are the wavelengths that are stored in the microtubules of our brain. And they actually play like organ pipes. You know, the microtubules, just, just like any type of music can come out of an organ pipe. It's a matter of the input from the apparatus. So they're basically saying that any amount of information can come out of those microtubules in, in waveforms. Like when we feel connection, we feel resonance, we have shared memories, we know certain people, the heart goes thump when we talk about mutual friends. Right. That these are all arisings from that phenomenon in, 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 this, in, in the world of in the world of form. So they're coming out finally to a holistic understanding of that cosmology of consciousness and brain-mind. And that's good news. I mean, that's wonderful news. And they're showing that in treating Alzheimer's, for instance, that when you treat and you start to fix the microtubules, which are breaking down in older people, the memories come back. Mm. And the abilities come back. So, in other words, even like the, the the organ pipe wouldn't be able to play if it had holes in it. Right. It would go there. Same same thing. So, this is getting on very solid ground, and and that's exciting. So, mm. maybe that's kind of a nice short version of that. That is. Thank you. And and that was uh, very clear. I was completely able to follow you. I know for a lot of people that topic can start to become daunting. You know, because it's the implications are pretty huge in it, and then you start to put the science to it and you lose a lot of people, but you just uh, really explained it quite nicely. I appreciate that. And it's exciting too, you know, like it's, it's, that's when I was saying earlier, uh, you know, when I have a hard time just resonating specifically with one path, you know, because I will read the teachings on emptiness in Buddhism and they resonate just as deeply in my heart as do the teachings, uh, you know, from Hinduism. Atman is Brahman and, and, you know, and looking to Krishna and, and you know, in that form love. It's, but, you know, understanding, like it says in the Heart Sutra, form is formlessness, formlessness is form. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, two sides of the non-dual coin, I guess we could say. Yeah, and I was going to say one of the great epiphanies, again, coming out of the altruistic evolution, is that... When science finally says that nature actually selects for what serves the whole, suddenly, you know, like David Sloan Wilson says, secular activists and sacred activists go, pardon me, they go, shit, <laughs> I always thought I was swimming upstream, you know, my heart was swimming upstream in all my sacred activism or secular activism work against this cruel process of yeah. nature, which is against me at every turn. Yeah. And suddenly, when you turn the paradigm on its head and you say, hey, nature actually selects for this, then you start to say, hey, I'm swimming with the current now. I'm not swimming upstream against the current. Now, if you think about how many activists burned out because they got convinced that they, this was going nowhere yeah. in this cruel, cruel world, <laughs> I mean, that's great news. That's liberating news. So that's another part of where the... Science is coming in like the Lone Ranger. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, Kurt, you know, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been a really uh, wonderful conversation. And I know I've already said this two or three times, but just one final time for our audience. The conversation we've had really barely begins to dive into just how much is happening in this wonderful book, The Coming Into Spiritual Age. I loved right off the bat, you open it up. And you have all of these incredible endorsements broken down by the, the different traditions. You know, you have teachers of awakened awareness, science and religion, divine feminine, inner faith, indigenous, humanism, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity. <laughs> oh, man, it's it's really a, uh, a tremendous book. One one that uh, I'm so glad is in the world and I cannot uh, recommend it enough. So before we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't cover that you would like to leave uh, the audience with? I was going to say, you know, the real treat for me, uh, and I have lots of treats in my life. We all <laughs> do, but you know, meeting you and reading your book and then, you know, really seeing the unbelievably unique, you know, meat grinder path that you went through to be who and what you are today and serving in the way uh, you do. That's the type of thing that for me keeps me going. Mm. 
because when I see those declarations by souls that are then out there, uh, that that to me is the whole the whole deal. So you know, meeting you, having this conversation, reading your book, and loving the rawness of it because uh, that's my life as well. So I just wanted to say that that for me was extra treat. Oh, wow. Well, the feeling is completely mutual, Kurt. Really, I, I thank you very much. I uh, deeply honor your contributions in the world. They mean a lot to me and I'm sure many, many others. So thank you for those very kind words. I really appreciate it. The website where people can find you is interspirituality.com, which we will have linked up on the webpage. Um, yeah, and also the book website yeah. is thecominginterspiritualage.com. Perfect. We'll make sure to include that as well. So thank you, Kurt, so much for your time and everything you're, you're bringing to this world. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks, Chris. It's wonderful. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.